Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 30th episode with me, Nicholas Baird-Lumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, we thought we would talk about hearings and testifying and appearing in public in different ways. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those moments in a company's life where it, where it really is, you know, it, it's put in the limelight and it has to answer for itself and it has to, to sort of... Uh, explain its position seems very important often very hard and we've seen it more and more with tech companies lately so so let's start from the basics why does a parliament call a hearing or you know why why are why would you call a company to to come and then testify I mean, generally because you think they've done something wrong, and and so actually, uh, I've had I've had the experience of sitting on both sides. I have been both the hunter and the hunted. I have sat in parliamentary committees in my capacity previously as a, a member of the UK Parliament, um, and then I've testified to committees as a representative as a company, and and I would say that you know certainly for businesses it's generally in the context of you you know belief that they've done something wrong and so that actually leads us to kind of you know the first challenge when you're on uh, in the policy team and trying to advise your business is you know a lot of other people will say well we can we can go to the committee and we can win the hearing and the first golden rule is you cannot win a committee hearing like it's you just a question of win a hearing. No. how badly are you going to lose because the starting point is you're going in as somebody who's guilty um, you know, but, but, otherwise they wouldn't bother bringing you in. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's a small marginal exception case to this right. that I think it's interesting, and that is if you're you're called in to testify about some popular phenomenon where you're supposedly have deep expertise, and those those hearings are are different because in that case you're asked to to come talk about this amazing new way in which technology can revolutionize the society, you know, with self-driving cars and how they will impact the environmental situation. So, so there is there's this, this sort of sliver of cases where you're actually yeah. called to to speak to your expertise. And you should always take those, by the way. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. That those, are, those are great. But yes, on, on, yeah, the, on yeah. the whole, you're absolutely 100% right. Uh, I, so you're, you've done something wrong. You get, what do you get? How do you, how do you get called to it? What actually happens? So they call you up. Do they send a letter pigeon? What's the? What happens? It, it, it'll be a mixture. And so, and so, so generally, you know, you've got some parliamentary body somewhere, and uh, and you're you're absolutely right. Sometimes they're taking expert testimony on on a subject of, of interest. And I would argue, you know, generally you'll get called to those either if you're a smaller company. <laughs> Or if you're typically a kind of civil society organization where they want to hear about this thing. Once you start becoming a bigger uh, um, company, then I think you, you very much switch into this bad guy mode. And I, I'm not sure how often, you know, um, Google was summoned, you know, please, please come and tell us what a great job you've done organizing the world's information. Um, you know, that wouldn't typically be <laughs> like hearing once you've once you grown. I mean, when you were in the very early days, yes, tell us about search. We don't know what it is. But at a certain point, a company will, will sort of cross the chasm and now become uh, significant enough that, that generally they're going to get summoned when when there's something happening. Um, what, what's happened on the committee side is, you know, the, the politicians will have sat around and gone, we want to investigate X. And, and they choose X, the subject they're going to investigate, really through a sort of mixture of the pressure they're hearing from constituents. So we should be straight up that, you know, they're often going to pick things because there is genuine public concern about it. But equally, pressure about something in 
uh, in the media that is generating lots of media stories or that it's on the legislative agenda or some mix thereof. Often often it's a mix of all three. Constituents are screaming about something, uh, the media is picking it up and the government intends to legislate in that area or is thinking about legislating that area, the, the, the parliamentary body. And so all of those things sort of say, well, this, this, this is an issue worth looking into. Um, and then you start... As, as a committee, you have a committee staff. And again, we, uh, interesting, I think we'll tease this out through this episode. You know, it's the tip of the iceberg thing. When, when you look at that video of the committee hearing, you're seeing the tip of the iceberg. And there is a huge amount more ice underwater on both sides. On, on yeah. the company side, I'm sure we'll get all of that. There's loads of other activity taking place. But also on the uh, parliamentary side, there's a whole host of committee staff who, who, you know, the, the politicians will say, well, we're interested in X, and the committee staff will go, okay, we'll draw up a list of the kind of people you should go and speak to. They'll, they'll search on Google for who the right people are to speak to, and they'll have their own resources, and they'll have, you know, uh, expert researchers. They'll consult external experts, come up with a list, and then the invites go out, um, and the invites will go out, again, once you get to be a large company and it's high profile, the act of inviting is itself, you know, part of the theatre of this thing. And so it'll be a very public invitation from a committee to the CEOs of a list of companies. And it uh, almost always will be the CEOs, right? Because they're trying for the highest possible. I mean, there there will be exceptions to this rule, but but there is a mechanism here that's really interesting, and that is who you invite also reflects on your own importance. If you exactly. if you sort of say, I'm going to invite the CEO of Company X, then it's so important, and the work that I'm doing in this committee is so important that CEO X should be should be coming here. There there is a mechanism there as well, right? And again, yes, again, that will partly depend though on. You're right. The committee's own view of its own importance. And they're quite realistic on the political side. You know, there are the, you, you can you know fire the CEO invite bullet only so often before you know you start looking a little ridiculous for firing it. So if you if you uh, and again be perfectly candid, like a a relatively small uh, committee or relatively sort of uh, less powerful committee in a relatively smaller country, and you continually invited the CEOs of very large global companies, I think people are going to you know, not necessarily think that that's the smartest thing, and that maybe you should be inviting the the person who has immediate responsibility for the operation of that global company in your country, uh, rather than just always find CEO. But if you're certainly, you know, the the company, the country where the company is based. So if you're the U.S. Congress and talking about American companies, your starting point will be to think about the CEO. Although, again, ha- having said that. You know, the US Congress has dozens and dozens of committees, and I think they recognize that not all of the committees can invite the CEOs all of the time. And so they'll ration themselves and they'll say, look, we're, you know, for this particular inquiry, we want the head of legal or we want the head of uh, uh, content policy or the head of news or whatever it is. So that they'll sort of self select. But for the biggest issues in the biggest countries, the invite will tend to go to the CEO and I say it'll be a very public you know, moment when they do that. And sometimes it's even a letter. They sort of write a letter. They send you an yeah. email to tell you you're getting a letter and then you get the letter. And it's really important to find that letter because most people, we, we get very little actual physical <laughs> post these days. So you have to find the letter, which, which turns out to be the first 
tool or task of the, the policy team is to find the letter. Let's see what's in the letter. So usually nowadays, you actually get a copy of the letter via email, and then uh, you hope that some some sort of postal function captures the physical letter as well. So you get the letter, it invites, say, for the sake of argument, it invites the CEO to come testify in this particular issue. What's the first thing you do then as a policy team? Um, as, as the policy team, the first thing is, is to assess the significance of it and, and advise. Um, and so, again, you know, you, you're running a global company. Your CEO is not going to know how significant an invite is from the Committee of Parliament X on subject Y. I mean, in, in a few cases, they will. Obviously, uh, they'll be following, you know, what's happening in Congress, perhaps what's happening in the European Parliament, a few of the other largest countries, they may have some awareness of it. But for a lot of these invites, it's very hard for them to be able to calibrate. So the first thing a policy team does is look at it, uh, calibrate it. Uh, if they're smart, and we're talking good practice here, they will send a holding reply pretty quickly. Um, and the holding reply has to be very carefully worded to neither you know, say yes nor no <laughs> to the hearing. And, and there are instances where you get that wrong. Your, your holding reply is too warm. And the committee will then go out and go, oh, the company has agreed to, to send their CEO to testify. And you're like, no, I didn't mean that at all. I was just I was just trying to be polite. You know, I will put this on, you know, make sure that Mark Zuckerberg sees this and gives it every possible consideration. Didn't mean yes. <laughs> so you can be a little bit careful there. <laughs> Equally, if your reply is too hostile, you know, uh, you know, we'll look at it and, and give it some consideration. Uh, maybe they'll interpret that as a no. <laughs> but actually, in the first instance, what you're trying to do is literally say, look, pl- please, Give me some time. Uh, I'm going to be polite. I'm going to acknowledge I've got it, but I do actually need a bit of time to to assess this, calibrate it. Uh, um, very practically, you know, if it is something where we think that we should be fielding somebody senior, check on their availability. There's a whole host of sort of questions that sort of kick in at that point. Um, and I say this is often where you can get it wrong as a policy professional by getting the tone wrong, um, by leaning too too far one way or the other while you're still in that decision-making phase. Or not um, answering at all because you, you it gets lost somewhere or someone thinks it's not important enough. It, all of these should be taken up for consideration, right? There's no such thing as a, as a blanket no, right? No, where, no, you should always. I mean, you respect, you know, a, again, this is one of the areas where um, uh, committee hearings go badly wrong for company or the company's reputation suffers through this process. Is the is the sort of sense that they're not respecting yeah. people um, who who are representatives of the citizens in their country who have legitimate questions for a company? I do appear to be disrespecting that. Um, you know, no matter how small the country, uh, and no matter how kind of junior the committee, you know, the response you give may be calibrated according to how junior the committee and and how small the country is in terms of your overall footprint, but it should always be respectful. <laughs> and it yes. should always recognize that people in every country have a right to be represented and have a right to have their request taken seriously. Um, so uh, yeah. you have gotten the letter, you're, you're sort of, you've sent away, you're, you're not too hot, not too, too sort of cold <laughs> yeah. holding reply, and, and you've gotten yourself a little bit more time. And, and you're sort of calibrating. Now, Interestingly, the policy team won't be the sole voice on this, right? You have to also ca- calibrate across other functions. Who's who's the first right. colleague you call when you get one of these? Uh, uh, I mean, again, it'll depend on the nature of the inquiry. But given that a, a lot of these, uh, you know, the letter will come with the with, if you like, the statement of accusations. It'll say, "We want to come and speak to you because you, your company has done this terrible thing." And so, it, in a lot of cases. 
it may be that you're exposing yourself to some legal risk and therefore you need to talk to your legal colleagues. And certainly, given that pretty much every committee hearing in the world now is televised, you're exposing yourself to reputational risk, and so you're talking to your comms colleagues. So this this triumvirate of the communications team, the policy team, and the legal team would normally be the, the decision-making function. And and we should be clear, again, um, uh, usual mm. proviso, no sympathy requested or uh, for tech companies, but no, no. you know when, when they are summoned... You know, the, these legal risks and and uh, reputational risks are, are very material. On the legal risk side, you know, a, lot, a lot of parliamentary hearings will have some kind of privilege, uh, and it may be that the, the words that you use in the hearing cannot be used in evidence against you, so you'll get told there's some sort of privilege. But having said that, if, you're, if they're asking you about something where there's ongoing legal action and you say the wrong thing, that is going to potentially create very, very significant legal risk for your company. And also because the different jurisdictions treat those indemnities uh, in different ways, right? Uh, so yeah. you're, yeah. And, and so, but so I think you're, so before we get too deep into that, you mm. have your legal colleague in the room, you have your comms colleague in the room, and, and you're all looking at this letter going, oh, okay. Um, yeah. What's the dynamic typically there? Are the comms people always gung-ho, let's go do this, it's good for us to appear in public, and the legal people going like, can we possibly avoid, or, or yeah. what's the, how do you, uh, is there a is there a generalized pattern or is it very different? No, I, I would say, I mean, I think legal colleagues would generally prefer you never ever to go to a hearing. You should never, <laughs> or, or or actually ever appear in public. I hope they'll, they'll <laughs> you know, it always, it creates additional risk from their point of view. Like a, a, a hearing is Which all is downside. From their point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're not, you can never resolve an ongoing court case in a hearing. You, you can't kind of go to the judge and go, we, we testified, now dismiss the plaintiff's complaint. Like it doesn't work like that. Um, and so all you're doing is potentially feeding, you know, complaints or creating ammunition to be used against you. So from a legal point of view, don't do it. Please don't do it. Do as few of these as possible. You know, that's perfectly rational and logical. From a comms point of view, they're, they're weighing up two things actually very much like the policy people. And from the comms point of view, it's between a rock and a hard place. You know, if we don't go and testify, we're going to get slammed in the press. And we've seen lots of instances of that. I love it personally. In my history at Facebook, it was like, you know, terrible. You get days of politicians saying, you know, these people are, are disrespecting us. They're terrible. They won't come and appear before us. And they're not just days, years in some cases. And so from the commons people, that's terrible, you know, reputational downside. But equally... If you go into the hearing, it, it creates risk again that you're going to say the wrong things. Uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, you're you're in a sort of lengthy hearing, and at some point somebody asks you a sensitive question, and you just you know look bored or look away or whatever it is, and that's on TV. And from a comms person's point of view, that's terrible. Now this clip is out there of you appearing to be dismissive of some you know legitimate complaint. Ah, so the comms people are between a rock and a hard place. What they would like is that the invite never happened in the first place. <laughs> so they would, they would say, policy people, please make sure, you know, your job is to make sure we never get summoned before committees. So we neither have the problem of dismissing the invite, nor do we have the problem of appearing and saying the wrong thing. So I think those but are the they have the same preference as the legal people. So you're yeah. in this room with your two colleagues and the cons people are like, could this please not have happened? Yeah. And the legal people are, could this please not happen? And yeah. then you're in the middle trying to mitigate that. Because as policy people, we we know we can never win a hearing, but we yeah. also know that we can lose not appearing at a hearing more than if we appear, right? Exactly, and the you know the punishment. So the policy people will be very sensitive to the punishment from from a, as a legal point of view. 
I think they probably have quite a high threshold for this sort of reputational damage. Well, as long as you know, as long as our court case are fine, that's fine. You know, uh, they, they, they're prepared to take the sort of heat. And from a policy point of view, you're worried about two things, really. One is, you know, sometimes it's not going to go away. And so you're just going to keep getting, you know, harassed by people. And, and politicians who were formerly perhaps quite warm to you start to become very cold to you. So it actually damages your day job. You, you now are less able to advance the company's interests in the policy world because uh, you now have this problem with a bunch of politicians. And let's talk about that specifically, because mm. there are even parliaments, including the European Parliament, that threatened to ban any company that didn't turn up at a, a, a hearing or, right. or some kind of um, some kind of committee. Uh, and and that's, that's something that seems to be increasing in frequency. So if yeah. you, you are not respecting us, we are not going to give you the access. That kind of thing is likely to happen more and more. Exactly. I mean, this, this dynamic is it's a really curious dynamic. And actually, there's a lot of kind of, you know, misinformation sort of spread around it that, you know, when parliaments summon people to come and speak to them, um, in some cases, I, I think in very few, it'd only be your own kind of home parliament that has any kind of legal power, if at all, to kind of hold you accountable for that. Um, the, the British Parliament, for example, I mean, there's a, there's a guy in Britain everyone knows called Dominic Cummings who was summoned before a committee of the British Parliament who kind of went, nope, I'm not coming. And uh, he get, got appointed to be the Prime Minister's principal advisor and all ended in tears. But, you know, like it just doesn't matter. In a sense, it kind of doesn't matter. If you say I'm not coming... There, there are these um, vestigial powers that have not been used for like 60 years and probably wouldn't ever be used again to kind of try and arrest somebody who doesn't come before the British Parliament. Um, but in most cases, I say that's the, the, the reality is there's very few powers. I think the US actually does have power of formal subpoena. And so for American executives, they could be formally subpoenaed. But in most cases, it, it, there's not going to be an ability for someone like the European Parliament to kind of arrest somebody and haul them before them so what they rely on instead is is this sort of uh negotiated threat where they say yes um, you know we can't make you appear before us but if you refuse to we'll withdraw some privileges we, we won't allow your lobbyists access to the european parliament uh we there are certain things we won't do for you so, so that you can both sort of be very hostile in the press and then have some kind of limited forms of sanctions, um, yeah. and, and there will be often again in this in this uh, iceberg that people don't see. There may well, you know, been below the water a whole host of negotiations before a hearing actually takes place, where companies and parliamentary staff are kind of threatening each other <laughs> in in different directions, according to whether or not the you know the testimony is going to be right. Let's get back on track and and sort of mm. we're we're in this room with your legal yeah. colleague, your comms colleague. We're looking at this and and uh, what are the so we we're there's an invitation here for your CEO to come testify mm. in front of Parliament X. Um, uh, what what makes you accept the invitation first uh, in general and then in particular for your CEO? What what makes you go? Yeah. We just have to do this, folks. Yeah, I mean, in general, I, th I think it is a, it's a simple sort of cost-benefit analysis. Like, what is the cost of not appearing? You know, I, actually, I suppose a cost-cost analysis <laughs> rather than cost-benefit. There's no benefit. Um, you know, what is the cost of not appearing versus the cost of appearing? That's really the equation that you're trying to sum up. And so there's certain instances, and again, this is where policy people uh, with their colleagues are, are advising and saying, look, you know, we there, there is something happening here. If we go along and testify, 
um, we can make it less bad than if we don't go along and testify. And that's a, a sort of an element of judgment. We can we can at least explain ourselves, put our position on the record. Uh, we're confident that we won't say anything wrong and screw up. Um, so, so again, it's a lot of it is then, have you got the right people who could go along and say the right things and not screw up? Uh, it's quite a big part of it. Um, uh, and the, in particular, we think that if we do this, it might close the thing down. It might you might be able to draw a line under it. That would that would typically be a sort of you know way of limiting uh, the costs. Versus, we'll leave it open. They'll have the hearing without us. They'll have all our critics in there. Uh, uh, they will keep you know coming back to the subject again and again and again. You know that will be the cost of not appearing. So that's really the equation that you're trying to sum up in general. And for your CEO, I mean, you want to use them incredibly sparing. We'll go on to like, you know, the cost of appearing mm-hmm. uh, is huge. And we can tease that out in terms of the time it takes, uh, the effort that goes in there to get this thing right. I mean, essentially, hearings are massively rehearsed on both sides, uh, yeah. both, the, both the committees and the companies. Once they accept it, particularly at CEO level, you're opening up for a massive amount of preparation and rehearsal before, you know, one performance only <laughs> must must be a good performance that's going to happen down the track. And so, you know, you are thinking very, very sparingly. A CEO might want to go to two or three hearings a year maximum. And and again, it's not necessarily a fixed quota. Absolute but, maximum, I would yeah, argue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because they otherwise, don't want to go to any hearings at all. No. If they get to choose. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, they're going to be going to hearings and not running the company. And and again, yeah. it's, uh, no, no tears expected, but uh, or no, no sympathetic sympathy expected. But but um, this is often the trade off as well that the people that the committee wants to speak to. You know, something has gone wrong. There's been a bit of a disaster somewhere, and committees rightly kind of queue up and go, I want to ask about that disaster. Well, the people that they want to spend their time kind of preparing and appearing before the committee, in many cases, are the people who are now focused on fixing whatever it was that went wrong. And so there's a genuine trade-off there between people being on on the circuit, explaining the the sort of what happened with this disastrous thing versus them spending their time fixing it and for CEOs that's especially true like any time that a CEO is on, on this circuit uh, preparing and speaking is time when they're not back in the office uh, reviewing whatever it is you're doing to try and fix the thing and making decisions and so that yeah. the hand is off the tiller if you like while they're off doing these hearings inevitably because for all of us you know this thing just takes up so much time and attention. And and now you're at this point where you have decided your le- your legal colleagues have grudgingly said okay then I see what you're saying and your comms colleague says oh I know it would be a, more of a horror if we didn't do it and and you are now recommending your CEO to appear in front of this hearing now happens that other thing that's that's really uh, interesting and that is that now is the time you have to start telling everyone how badly the hearing will go so nobody thinks you're winning <laughs> yeah, right yeah yeah it's a, it's like a, and again anyone who's worked in politics will know this game of sort of lowering expectations before an election so that when, when you get a better result uh, uh, you're doing well um, and so similarly yes before a hearing you've got to kind of lower expectations in order in order to sort of scrape through and say that that was okay and both internally and externally by the way I mean but internally you will have all these people who now go gung-ho and says we'll we'll you know set things right we'll tell the truth they will see the light and we'll make sure that we explain ourselves once and for all so you have to moderate that because that's not the function of a hearing and then 
externally, you also have to say there's not much we're going to be able to say about this issue. You know, most things have already been said. Don't expect us to talk about things that are currently in, in litigation. Da, 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 da. So yeah. there, there is like, you, you decide to do it. And at the very point you decide to do it, you have to really start lowering expectations. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this thing, the thing that you're going into is, is somewhere, it's, it's like a sort of um, mongrel hybrid of a trial and a theatre performance. It's sort of, it's got sort of aspects of both. And, you know, in terms of the trial, you don't want to lose, i.e. you don't want to go in there and, and sort of uh, have said things that make your position worse than it would otherwise have been. And in terms of theatre performance, frankly, you want it to be boring. You want it to be an event because the theatre that everyone is looking for is for you to look really bad uh, and for the politicians to look really good. I mean, it's their turf. They've set it up so that they can look good and you will look bad. And so, yes, that's your that's your sort of starting point. So, so um, you need to make sure that people aren't going, aren't, aren't thinking, well, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be the star of the performance and everyone's going to think I'm fantastic. Ain't going to happen. And, and you especially don't want people to be kind of thinking, well, I'll go in there say, and I'll, I'll fix the problem because it's very mm. rarely the case. This is a trial where at best you can be declared uh, in Scottish um, legal terms, they have three verdicts. There's guilty, not guilty, and not proven. So not proven is not quite not guilty. There just wasn't enough evidence. And I actually think for committee hearing, you've basically got those two verdicts available, guilty and not proven. There isn't a not guilty verdict, like not on the table, you know, for most committee hearings. So, so uh, you've decided to, you've managed expectations and now starts the really hard work, right? Because now yeah. you've, you've decided to do this, you've tried the lower expectations, you've talked to everyone. Now you have to start to anticipate and think through what the hearing will actually look like. Tell me a little bit about what, how does that work hmm. um, proceed? So, so, I mean, each body each parliament will have a different style so first firstly again as a policy professional you need to understand that and not treat them all the same well, let's talk about that a bit because that's yeah. interesting Would, so let's compare for example the uk parliament uh with the european parliament what what are the differences yeah so i'd i'd say um uh, well let's bring in the three as well in the u.s congress because i think there, there are yeah. there's some yeah, really interesting point, yeah. differences there so the uk parliament generally and i've sat on these committees so i know how it works um that, that you have really, really good committee staff and that uh, they essentially sort of string together a narrative in a series of questions. So they know what you, where you're trying to get at and they will bring in expert advisors. So, you know, a lot of the people that spend their time so full time pretty much criticizing tech companies, for example, in the case of our sector, um, they may find themselves being offered a bit of work for a few months helping the committee uh, prepare uh, the questions that it's going to put to you and provide all the supporting evidence. So the UK Parliament, a lot of people praise the committees because they say, well, that was really coherent and and felt like they, were, you know, they really got to the heart of it. Well, yes, because there's this incredible professional staff who who literally have put together, you know, 20, 30 questions, uh, all supported by evidence, all really well worked out. And then they're distributed to the members of the committee. And so you kind of have a preparatory meeting where you'll say, I'll have question one and two, and so-and-so will take question three and four. And, and yes, you know, you can insert your own questions as well. It's not, it's not like fully scripted. You've got freedom. But, but the committee is working as a unit to try and get through those questions, essentially like a barrister who is building a prosecution case would have a whole series of questions for a witness, you know, where there's a coherence. 
Yeah, and I think that coherence is really important for the the times that I've seen or participated in UK hearings. I, one of the things that strikes me is that what you said, the narrative of the questions that you you first ask an innocuous question: Is it not the case that you uh, have this and this interest, or that you you have uh, this many people using your platform? And you go yeah. like, Yes, I have this many people using my. And is it not the case that you have said in your terms of service that you do not allow da da da? da? And you say yes, that's the case. And then you say. So what do you say about this particular piece that so obviously violates all of your terms and services? And yeah. th- that sort of narrative stringing together, I think the UK yeah. Parliament is 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 and really good at. It's not it's not being combative, but it's being forensic. Forensic is it? Yeah, that's a great and, word. And then what you'll find there is they'll switch to another member who will then build on those previous questions and say because they're all working to the script. And I, and again, trade secrets behind behind. Uh, behind the doors, what you see is, you know, from a lot of these select committees in the UK Parliament, there's a, f- a few really active members, the chair and others will be very, very focused on on this. But for quite a few of the members, they just turn up on the day and and they'll have a quick pre-meeting and they get given their questions and they're very good advocates. If You, you know, the, the primary skill of being a good politician in a representative system is to be a good advocate. So as a good advocate, they can pick up the questions. And it's brilliant as a member of parliament because you look really, really smart. You're asking these incredibly sort of detailed forensic questions and you're not having to put very much time in at all because some really, really clever people crafted them for you. You turned up, you got the questions, you read them out and everyone out there thinks you're brilliant. Now, you do need to have, again, it's not to belittle them. This is this is a, you know, it's, all systems have a... Uh, a, a function and a pattern and this is a really kind of high functioning system um you also like a very good advocate need to be quick on your feet as well so it's not it's not to, and you can see that between the members who you know they ask question one and two and and actually the answer to question two is really interesting and they may then deviate and, and pursue it themselves with question three versus the member who reads out a non sequitur question three uh, because they're just literally following the script so the the best members will take these pre-prepared questions use those to, to run into the subject but then be quick enough on their feet to drill in if something interesting comes out that they should should be following up on and they're so, also really good at sort of uh, snorting at questions, answers that yeah. they don't like, and, and sort of making faces. And there, there's, there's a performance. It, it, there's a performance, a, yeah. a sort of a forensic, <laughs> forensic argument, and a yeah. uh, a really good performance. So the UK Parliament, That's, forensic, focused yeah. on on uh, preparing excellent staff. Now let's go to the European Parliament. Yeah, so, so the European Parliament's a mix. So it's got some of that, and and I've you sort of see both. <laughs> I think the the European Parliament. Um, uh, aspires I think to be like that and that is their sort of uh, preferred culture and I've certainly been to hearings that have again very good professional staff have worked through it there are some issues I mean uh, the translation piece actually changes the nature altogether of a hearing uh, you know if it's if everybody's working in first language there's a kind of flow and a combat to it. And it, it, it is more like the sort of, you know, top line barrister grilling a witness in a courtroom. And it, it can feel very uh, sort of rich and and almost entertaining. And the repartee, yeah. It, yeah, right, yeah. it, it yeah, becomes yeah. more stilted when you're, you know, there's a lot of translation taking place, even though, again, the translation in the European Parliament is very good and simultaneous, but there'll be a lot of, uh, it's, it feels a little bit more stilted and clunky, it can be more technical, um, but it can be very good. And again, it can flow quite well. But then at other times, 
the European Parliament will sometimes slip into a mode which is more like the American mode we'll get onto, which is much more individualistic, where it's an, an individual turns up with their hobby horse. And so the hearing is less about a forensic cross-examination of somebody on a particular theme to try and draw them out, and much more, we've got you in front of us. You know, I I care about X, so-and-so cares about Y, um, uh, and what you're going to hear is X, Y, P, R, T, you know, every letter of the alphabet, but randomly scattered. So it's not like an A, B, C, D, E, F, G kind of flow. It's, I say, this sort of random thing. And that's partly, again, uh, um, I think because in the European Parliament, the groups tend to be less coherent in some ways. You know, there are very, very different groups with very different politics, uh, and then they're not necessarily working together in the same way. What's interesting in the British Parliament is, you know, around that table, there's Conservative members, Labour members, Liberal Democrats, Scottish Nationalists, all the different parties. But when they're in the committee they feel like they're working together, advancing a common agenda most of the time. In the European yeah. Parliament, you're more likely to get, you know, the, the far-right person who's got their hobby horse is going to come in on questions that relate to their hobby horse and the far-left person will have theirs and conservatives will have theirs and, and socialists will have theirs and so on. So I, it can feel a little bit more uh, disjointed because people are bringing their own agenda to the Parliament. And so my experience is also uh, partly because of the translation issues, as you mentioned, but also generally that you get less airtime if you're in a hearing in the European Parliament than you do in the UK. And it's not a good thing, by the way. You want as as little airtime as possible, um, yeah. and you you get less airtime in in the uh, European Parliament than you would in the UK Parliament. Now we're not experts on the US, but let's talk no. a little bit about the US Congress as well. Yeah, so I watched a uh, watched a lot of those and um, been involved in the preparation <laughs> for some of them because you know when you're having a yeah a cross-cutting theme you've got people appearing in each of these bodies and you've got to try and coordinate it and so and the u.s one again in in the the u.s system is much more individual member based as a whole and so you do feel that the members in the u.s congress are kind of competing with each other as much as anything else um which again is very different so it does feel like this is a series of 10 or 11 individuals and and they ration the time very carefully and there's a sort of much more of a sort of hierarchy so it's not a group of people working together it's a group it, it's a it's um you know uh 10 11 15 one-to-one sessions between the member of congress and the witness um there's a lot more of the member of congress i, I find generally reading out their own views and putting their own views on the record in the US system. And then it doesn't, I mean, they have committee staff and, the, and there is a lot of sort of preparatory work that takes place. But again, I think the committee staff, there is a lot more separate staff for each party, for example, and then separate staff for each member. So it does feel, as I say, when I watch them, like it's individuals against uh, the the witness, each trying to out-compete each other to, to have the best two or three minutes in the limelight uh, rather than the committee as a whole necessarily doing its job. And then in the US, interesting, you see a lot more committee members attacking each other. I mean, they'll, yeah. they'll uh, including with the jest and everything, but you'll see them really, you know, sometimes the challenge is they'll use the witness to kind of attack another member. <laughs> you know, would the witness agree that when Representative so-and-so said something that they were talking rubbish kind of thing? So you'll, you'll sometimes see that dynamic as well. Yeah. 
And the, then the, in general, you, you uh, had a lot of criticism around the tech hearings of the U.S. Congress about the level of knowledge when it came to their questions. Yeah. And there was a lot of commentary that essentially said that we have a sort of a, a knowledge gap here that's deeply problematic for, for democracy. Is that true for all parliaments, I, do you think? I, I'm not sure they're that different in terms of their knowledge. But again, if you think about it, if you are uh, effectively a, an advocate uh, and and you've got a brilliant team behind you, <laughs> That, and you're taking the stuff that they've prepared, you seem very knowledgeable, whether that knowledge is deep knowledge or was acquired for the hearing that day. Um, and so I'm not sure there's a huge difference in the baseline knowledge, say, of members of UK Parliament or members of the US Congress. But I think there is a difference in the way they approach the committee hearing that the member of the UK Parliament is much more likely to take the pre-prepared expert brief that will make them look good <laughs> And, and help advance the committee's objectives than a member of the US Congress who's going to be much more talking to their own staff, working out what they want to raise as a political issue, which may make them appear to be kind of less expert. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's the I know I have a preference. I prefer, you know, just, as a, just as a sort of professional, I prefer the, the UK uh, model, I think, because it doesn't require the members necessarily to be deep experts in the subject. And this is not confined to tech, it's on anything. You know, I go to I was on a committee called the Public Accounts Committee that looked at spending, you know, and I learned to ask really, really good questions about defense expenditure and, you know, why money was wasted on tanks that didn't work. I know nothing about tanks or defense, you know. <laughs> but, but but because they wrote these really good questions, I could sound really, really expert on it. Um if I'd been writing them myself, it would, you know, it would have been stupid questions more than people would have gone, this guy knows nothing. So so there's a lot of self-interest in in taking the pre-prepared questions. But but in the reverse then, I mean I suppose that in a way you would argue that the UK Parliament, if you had to rank them as as the sort of most difficult parliaments to appear in front of, the UK Parliament presents a unique challenge in that, that they will have yeah. this this forensic way of approaching the issue and a, a great deal of experience usually. I think that you're selected for your your committee uh, work in the UK Parliament more than in the uh, European Parliament because the UK Parliament hearings are often highly publicized, yeah. both the press and in, in television. And it was a long time since I saw, at least in, in Sweden, any... Uh, press or media coverage of yeah. the European Parliament hearing. So, it's, I mean, it's, again, it's worth just taking a minute to think about the motives of the people on the parliamentary side, which I say I feel qualified to speak. Um, I mean, and uh, having sort of lived it, and and you really, you know, as a, as a politician, this is not again not cynical, but it's just a fact. There is kind of two things you want. One is you want to get re-elected, <laughs> and so you want to be popular, and the other is that you want to advance your career inside your party and the political structure and committees can help you on both of those things and one they can help you with your constituents if you appear in the committee and it is televised and you look good so there is a kind of motivation for people to to take it seriously in order to get the kind of profile that's likely to get them you know more support if they take up an issue that their constituents care about um and interestingly you would find like frankly the more sort of boring less newsworthy committees you'll get a lot less attendance uh, so yeah. members just won't show up once a committee's got its teeth into something and this is why tech was so good because tech stories you kind of guaranteed front page newspaper stories so a committee 
you know, takes on a tech story that's about Google or a Facebook, it starts to get coverage. That then encourages more members to take part and become more active. It's the place to be because you're going to get on telly. And if you get on telly, you, you know, you're going to, you're doing good things as well. Again, not dismissing that. You've got yes, a pure yes, motive. We, but we will not be cynical. But no. purely from a sort of professional point of view, it's good for your career. And then the other thing, again, varies from system to system, but a system like the UK, it's a parliamentary system where the executive is in parliament. So by definition, the people on the committees are the people who aren't in the executive, which is very different actually from a lot of other uh, systems. And so committee work is one of the ways in which you kind of prove yourself. Uh, And when I say the executive, actually, you're neither on the, what they call the front bench of the opposition. You're neither you know, a key party spokesperson for the opposition, and nor are you a minister for the government. Uh, Those people are not allowed to be in the committees. So one of the ways in which you try and establish yourself is good performances in committee will then boost your reputation. You hope your party leader is going to look at you and go, well, they did a great job. I'm now going to either on the government side, make them a minister or on the opposition side, make them a front bench spokesperson. So, so that those those sort of dynamics and those drivers to perform well, I think, are built into certainly the UK system. It, there'll be other dynamics and other drivers in each of the systems. I think in the US one, where where it's this sort of individual promotion uh, is quite strong in the rather than a party, a little bit less of the party stranglehold and more, you know, you promote yourself as an individual. Um, the, the key performers, the AOCs in uh, recent uh, times is a sort of standout example. You know, somebody like that who's a, a, a new congressperson who comes in, a couple of great performances in committee, and suddenly they're being talked about as, you know, future presidential material and all this other stuff. Um, so again, there's a dynamic there to perform well. Yes. So back to back to our scenario here. We have um, you know, looked at it with our colleagues, and what we have done now is we have looked at what Parliament it is, and recognized that every Parliament has its own method or gestures of its own rhetoric, if you will. And we're sort of thinking about, okay, how should we prepare vis-a-vis this Parliament? Yeah. What's the next step? Now we have we've identified that we're we're going to appear in front of Parliament X. What do you do? Do you sit down and write talking points or? So, so I think you need, there's two things that have to run in parallel and uh, um, sometimes you can get these confused. So again, tip, tip, word from the wise, I hope we're wise on this, is, is figure <laughs> this bit out. So you've got to figure out what you want to say and who's going to say it. <laughs> and they kind of need to run in parallel. So you, you, want to, you want it to be the right person for the stuff you're going to talk about. And then, and then figuring out what you're going to be talking about requires you to have a really good understanding of that parliament and, and, and the specific inquiry and what they're interested in. And again, a big mistake you can make is you think they're going to want to talk about X and they end up wanting to talk about Y. You send an expert on X and they look really stupid when they're asked lots of questions about Y. Um, yes. so, so there's this really, really important sort of um, stage where you try and understand in, in a lot of detail Okay, you know, uh, we had examples, you know, the Snowden revelations, uh, remember, about surveillance. So, you know, when they want to have a hearing on that, is the parliament, you know, wanting to talk about the legality of it? Are they wanting to talk about interactions with the U.S.? Uh, government are they wanting to talk about surveillance in that particular country and and disclosures which bit of snowden you know do they want to talk about um and once you figure that out in parallel you'll be thinking well who is the best person that we could feel to speak you know if the questions are going to be in that uh zone um and then as you do that you start to then say okay now and then who do we need to help us prepare on that 
you know, where are the gotchas? Where are the things in that particular subject area we could we could get wrong? But as I say, I think for, for me, the critical piece of preparation is to understand what you're going to be talking about, which is not necessarily apparent from the headline. Uh, um, They've asked you to come and testify on X, but I say you need to be really, really confident and work through what you think that actually means in practice. Uh, But it's also going to be hard because in some cases they're going to want, for example, your country lead to come talk about tax because it's the country lead and they have a high profile and you want that person to appear in front of the committee. And so that's that's sort of unfair on the country lead, but it also creates uh, a risk uh, in in, uh, for the parliament that they won't get the answers they need. So sometimes you can try to send two people, one who's a tax expert alongside the country lead, for example, you you mix and match that. So you've you've sort of looked at this and you said, I think the ideal person to send is this person, and then you're starting to work out what you would like to say. But there's what you would like to say and what you're likely to be asked. Yes. And they are unfortunately not the same, it turns so, out. They're not, but uh, but again, you know, the art of a good committee hearing, and people will say this is, this is cynical, uh, or may say this is cynical, but this is what politicians do all the time. You do it on the other side. When you go into a TV interview as a politician, you know what you want to say, and whatever question you get asked... Again, if you're a really good politician, whatever question you get asked, you'll be able to bring it back uh, to the thing you wanted to say. There is, there is a, a here's a real trick of the trade, a, a, a technique known as uh, ABC, acknowledge bridge control. And so, whenever somebody asks you a question, you acknowledge it. You know, they uh, they, they come in and they say you want to talk about the price of potatoes, and the question is, you know, yes, but what about the price of fish? And you acknowledge the price of fish is very, very important. Then you bridge. But fish are often eaten with chips control. So what I want to tell you about chips is that the price of potatoes <laughs> is, you know, and so there's this sort of, uh, you, you can't just sort of ignore it. You can't go, they ask about the price of fish. You can't just talk about the price of chips. You've got to kind of recognize it and take take them from the fish to the chips. Let's dig into this. You know, <laughs> let's dig into to tactics a bit. ABC is one tactic. The other yeah. tactic is the so tactic. You yes. teach someone who's in a hearing to start every response with a so, because if you start answering the question, you're likely to get stuck. So you ask, me, isn't it the case that your platform has promoted terrorism? I asked her. So we have a lot of different techniques to take down the content that you're worried about. And let me tell you about that content. So the so is another tactic. Always start your responses with the so, never answer a direct question. The ABC is one tactic. You mentioned a tactic earlier that I think is is, is sometimes horribly uh, underestimated, but so important. You mentioned that you wanted to be boring what does yes. let's unpack what boring is here what's what's boring in a hearing i, I mean again if you think that this is a, a contest between two sides and you think from the other side's point of view they say they want this moment this gotcha moment i got you i got you in my hearing to say something outrageous makes you look terrible you know and I, worst, I, you look angry right yeah yeah they, they want to have sort of got that got that sort of moment where you see the hearing was worth it because we got this out of them um and from your point of view you don't want to give them anything uh again not not because you dislike them or don't respect them let's be clear but simply because the hearing isn't the place to do that i mean if if you you know want to have a really uh, frank and open discussion about something that's going on on your platform uh where you 
you know, you're often better off doing that outside of hearing, not not because you're necessarily embarrassed about what you're going to say, but just because when you're watching every single word that you say, because it's televised and it could be used against you, you just speak in a very different way from a natural conversation. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, we're having this conversation now on the podcast. We, we're kind of just saying what we're thinking. And some people will listen to that and go, well, you know, you would never have said that when you were working at Google or Facebook. No, probably not. Not on a public platform. No. You would have, you know, been much more circumspect. So so from your point of view, you know, even if you've got something really interesting to say, the committee hearing probably isn't going to be the place to say it. It doesn't mean you're not willing to be forthcoming. It's just you're not willing to be forthcoming right there. Because it's not the space, you're not feeling, you know, uh, free enough to be able to talk in a very sort of open way. And this is super hard with experts, because experts believe that what they do is really interesting, and they want to explain, they want to teach. And teaching is a big no-no in any circumstance. Worst case scenario, best case scenario seems likely patronizing. Worst case scenario, it seems as, as, as if you're completely denying or disrespecting the people who are asking the questions. Right? So a core part of being boring is never teach. Yes. Never, yeah. ever teach, right? Never teach. And, and again, actually, to your point, though, on the, on the so question, actually, one of the um, things that you need to learn is, is the judicious use of the direct answer, the yes, no answer. This is just a contrast with that, yes. Yes, so, yes, you're right, which yeah. actually can make it much more boring. So it's sort of, um, you know, again, if you if you're really sort of prepared and thought this through and they go, but the problem is that this bad thing is happening on your platform and you know, sometimes you want to go, yes, I agree that bad thing is happening and it's serious and we need to deal with it. Bang. <laughs> End of line of questioning. If you go, no, this bad thing is not happening on my platform. Here, let me pull out five examples of the bad thing. And now we're going to spend you know, 10 minutes where I beat you on the head and you're going to deny something, which is obviously true. And, and you know, that's when it sort of got interesting. So, so again, sometimes, you know, the directness of your answer is often a very, very good way to kind of disarm something and make it less interesting. You know, uh, politicians said bad you- thing happens, platform agreed bad thing happens. Now, how do we fix it? You know, it's less interesting than politician beat platform over the head who kept denying that bad thing happened yes and i I think you're absolutely right and i think one one of the one of the core things to remember there is that you have to pick your points of contention yes don't don't think that you're in a hearing that's adversarial in the sense that you have to deny everything you can you can give a lot of the premises because they're well known and well established and you only look ridiculous if you deny them if you're in a hearing and somebody says you know there's a a a huge problem with um, fraud on the internet. And you say, no, there isn't. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like yeah. it's, yeah. it's not huge compared to to other problems it's like you you seem as if you're picking yeah. or, every or, single point of contention that you can which is you, another horrible mistake yeah. right you, you're not paying very much tax in my country yes we are is not the right answer it's <laughs> no we're not uh and you may then want to qualify it and say but it's the amount we're legally required to pay but yes you don't contest yes. the reality or you, or you talk about your global tax effective yeah. tax rate which yeah. is the other yeah. yeah but so so we're, we're still at the boring uh, yeah. pick your points of contention you the yes and no uh figure out uh, how to to answer i think that the the thing you were also alluding to is is keep your answers short yes don't be do not be interesting is obviously the obvious of, of being boring but what one way of, of sort of checking yourself is to just answer the question and don't go beyond that's right and i mean a lot, a lot of the mistakes people make 
it is by going on too long. And and there are t- two things, you know, two problems with that. So one is the, the chance of you throwing in words that you later regret, regret increases the more words that you kind of throw into a particular thing. But, but also you, the way that you come across, it, it makes it look as though you're being evasive. Um, yeah. Particularly again, body language. This thing is te- is made for television. It's a performance. You know, it's it's got important substance, but it's a performance. And if the performance that comes across is politician asks, particularly if it's one of these well scripted, crisp questions, and tech company person sort of drones on and on, and politician starts looking frustrated and has to cut back in and go, but you're being evasive, da, 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 and and you just clip that on TV, even without looking listening to the words it does look like this person was being evasive and the politician was being crisp and, you know, had to cut them off. That's just not a great look. So you're being boring. You're, you're, um, you're picking your points of contention. You're not teaching, you're answering, you know, in short bursts of yes and no. And, 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 and you're sort of, you're getting through this now. This, this, in order to get to this point where you do that, you have to rehearse. You mentioned yes. rehearsals earlier. We we used to call them murder boards, oh. and and there was just one really important point uh, of, of of a rehearsal, and the single most important point was this: you should get the most horrendous, horrible questions before you go into the hearing. Nothing in the hearing should be worse than what you experienced before, which made these rehearsals into extraordinarily grueling exercises. I don't know about you, but I've been through a couple of these and and they're quite demoralizing, aren't they? That's that's right, yeah. I don't know where this phrase murder ball comes from, which I never heard until I went to work at a US tech company. So I don't know if it's a US thing. um, I mean, I knew that the function, the function in Britain is known as a mock hearing, which is, I think, much more for sort of milder so, so yeah i've been involved with like people doing mock hearings and then and then i go to the us and go yeah we're running a murder board and i was like oh, is that like a murder mystery Lord. dinner party is this something fun it's like um but you say it's not and and these things i mean we can't again and un- overstate just like how much investment goes into these and they're, they're and be candid they're big money spinners um yeah. uh you know typically if it's a big hearing with a senior executive you, the preparation may take weeks and weeks and weeks and will typically involve a mix of either or both of an expensive law firm, uh, often who, who have former members of parliament uh, on their roster as consultants that they bring in for these things and at a really, really healthy daily rate. And then uh, uh, your comms, maybe your comms agency as well will form part of this. And so you'll create this whole setup uh, and the policy team will often be in the middle of it and the policy team will often play the role of the annoying... <laughs> Uh, aggressive members of parliament. Um, we actually and, changed that to outside consultants because people ah, felt so bad about it. But I, I, right. you know, I yeah. think that's... But so, some mix of that, yeah. Um, yeah. And so you run it and, and you may be spending, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars on this preparatory phase, plus taking in, taking up a huge amount of time of a, a really significant team before a hearing. Um, and again, that may, from an inside secret kind of point of view people like oh that's outrageous that's shocking that you would do that but but just again just think about what's at stake here you know you get this wrong and and you can mess up your legal position on something that's really really important for the company and or mess up your reputation again not necessarily because you did something bad but just because you had a lapse of concentration you just you know hadn't expected something you got take caught unawares in that hearing and so the cost of failure is so high that you're willing to make a significant investment up front in order not to get rid of the risk of failing, never do that, but to at least mitigate it and and sort of make it as manageable as possible. 
And there's another effect of this as well. If you get through a hearing, uh, you know, with some integrity and dignity and you come out on the other side, it actually also matters for your company. Uh, So take take one well-known example is when Bill Gates went to Washington and had a couple of hearings and, you know, he he came off as bored, as irritated, as angry. And and there was within Microsoft, you can read this in several business books, there, there was a saying after that, whenever the company was planning to do something controversial, they said, let's not send Bill back to Washington. Yeah. Or to DC. Right. And so it, it, a hearing actually has an impact on the morale of your company as well. Again, not seeking sympathy, but it's important to realize that you're performing for different audiences. You're performing for the general public. You're performing for a political audience. You're performing for possible litigants, but you're also performing for your own company. Your ability to recruit, your ability to tell people that, you know, they're doing the right thing and what they're doing is really valuable also kind of depends on how they manage to get through the hearing. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's a contest of personalities like sort of um. Uh, well, I th- actually think the politicians haven't got much to lose because expectations tend to be quite low anyway at the starting point. So, you know, a politician goes into a hearing, they have an off day, they don't ask, you know, very interesting questions, they're they're a bit boring and they don't want to be boring, they want to be interesting. Like, nobody cares, you're just not going to focus on that hearing. Uh, best case scenario, they say they have one of those moments where everyone goes, my God, a star is born, this person went into committee, they were brilliant. Worst case scenario, yeah, nothing. From the other side, the tech company CEO, you know, best case scenario, it was a nothing burger. And then then people will actually usually criticize the politicians and go, well, the politicians were having an off day because they couldn't land a blow on Zuckerberg or uh, Sundar or whoever it is that like, came before them. Worst case scenario for them is massive loss of confidence. Here they are, these yeah. these sort of great, great creatures. And yeah, loss of confidence. I mean, the public may dislike them anyway but their home team their company is looking for them to go and represent them well and if they represent the company badly inside the company it's like oh my god you know that's our boss and that's really damaging and and from a politician's point of view that's the outcome they often want i mean a lot of cases they would like nothing better than the bill gates scenario you described that the politician manages to make the the tech company executive look terrible yeah. Um, it's all set up to do that in in many cases. Yeah. So um, we we have the 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 horrible murder board. You're yeah. asked the the worst kinds of questions. I remember some of my murder boards leaving me exasperated, just thinking I I'll just I'll I'll call in sick. I'll not go through this hearing. Uh, but it was an extraordinarily interesting exercise, and I must say that I I learned a lot about not just human psychology, but about hearings and about questions and about how to structure things. And so there's an art to this that's that's really quite fascinating. But then you go into the actual hearing, and if everything was done well and the preparation was was meticulous, you, you you can get really hard questions, but none of the questions should be harder than what you got before. And so let's talk a little bit about what what after the hearing. What are the most important things that you do? Yeah, well, I mean, just uh, quickly during the hearing, just one thing, one yeah, thing, yes, just to know sorry. is something will go wrong. You, you uh, will, and yes. and you recover. You will say something, and and when you'll go, ah, oh, damn, like that was wrong, and and the really important thing is that you don't allow that to throw you off, and, and never show any hesitation. No, no, you've no, got you've right, got yeah. to like you know, like I say, the 
politicians are great advocates at their best, and you also need to be a good advocate. And by the way, that's actually one of the reasons why companies want to feel policy people a lot of the time, because their policy people also tend to have good advocacy skills. Their engineering people and their business, actually salespeople, business salespeople usually will be quite good as well. But but you know, the, some some sale uh, some engineering folks will actually be very good advocates, but quite a few of them will not. They've just not had to do that, and that's not you know the core skills they were hired for. But Pretty much every policy person who works at a company will be expected to have advocacy skills as a core skill. So a good advocate doesn't allow themselves to be thrown off. They, they sort of put that in their back pocket and go, okay, at the end of the hearing, as we get to the end of the hearing, I'm going to have to go back over what I said and check that I didn't say anything wrong or and I need to also get a second opinion on that thing I said because I know it's a bit off. But I need to just like put that to one side for now, write a little note, <laughs> And then get on with answering the next question and and not try and dig myself out of the hole. Because if you try and dig yourself out of a hole in real time, the hole will generally just get bigger. So, so yeah. what you're doing after the hearing, that is the, you know, the, the critical thing. Uh, it's very interesting on um, uh, when you do media training, if everyone's listening to this and done media training, one of the things they teach you is if you're doing TV and you're sitting kind of upright in a chair and you're perfectly balanced, the thing you mustn't do is slump and go, ah, as soon as the interview is over, because the camera is probably still rolling. So the first thing you've got to do is <laughs> you've got to leave the committee room and not, not, not kind of go, oh, thank Christ, that's over, and, and not, not, not just verbalise that, but don't do it in your body language. Get out of the committee room. Often... You, what, what you should do out. is you should have somebody with you who exactly. sort of comes up to you and talks to you. You can engage in something yeah. that looks like a really engaged conversation as you're leaving the room. So you're not looking around. You're not The best way I think that we planned this was that the person who accompanies you, because you should always have somebody in the room who can sort of help you then through the postmortem, comes up to you directly after right. and engages you. And they can speak about the weather or a soccer match or anything, but you look as if you're engaged in conversation, taking things seriously as you leave the room. Yeah, you, you you need a plan um, for the end of the hearing. And again, in, in an ideal scenario, if you've, and again, this is general advice, if you're able to engage with uh, members of the committee beforehand, so you perfectly reasonably sort of get to know them before, and then you can engage with them at the end, that's, that's actually also, a very nice yeah. thing to do. And if you're talking to members of the committee, the press and others are and less likely to kind of come up and badge you immediately. And then you have the person who's with you sort of take you off, work out where the safe space is, where you can close the door and then you can go, ah, thank Christ, that's over. Like, I mean, you have to do that. You just don't you do it in the room. You don't do the room. No, you get to the safe space and then you do that. And then and then you're going to have this conversation where you're going to work through anything that you think was difficult and then get second sort of opinions on that. Um, but it's that, it's that sort of physically getting to the space the safe space where you're not being watched or overlooked, where you can like now go, okay, what what just happened there? What happened there? And, and have a drink and just relax. Yeah. And, and now it's up to your comms people to to help you land if you said something that was a bit funky, uh, or yeah. just generally try to make sure to follow up. It's I, my experience is that often after hearings, it's not a good idea to immediately have the person who was in the hearing talk to the press, but yeah. much better to give them a breather um, uh, if that's possible at all. 
But so, okay, we've been through the entire hearing process yeah. from the letter coming in, from the conversations, from the prep to the actual hearing. Uh, we have, uh, I think, had a masterclass in how to be boring. And, <laughs> and we, we sort of talked about what comes after. And then, of course, you start to sort of do a post-mortem and figure out what can we learn from this hearing that we can apply in other situations. I think, I think, that's, a, I think that's a full episode right there. Yeah. And as... Always, we would love to hear from you, your questions or thoughts, or if you disagree, or if you've been to any good hearings lately. And uh, you can find this podcast on your website, Richard, which is? www.regulate.tech. Perfect. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you with us next week.